0: Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North and about the North. Our Westminster editor Dan O'Donoghue is here once again to help me put the spotlight on some of the big Northern stories we've been writing about this week. Dan, how are things? Hi Rob, yeah
1: not too bad thanks, we're just uh, through the worst of the heatwave in London so thankfully um, I've I've melted during that so yeah not too bad.
0: Yeah I've welcomed the opportunity to put a sensible coat and hoodie back on again as uh, nature's healing after a weird period of weather. So obviously it's quite quiet in Westminster in the moment, what's been the big story for you in in the last few days? Well, so um, I've just, um,
1: I've been working on a piece for a little while now, I've put a load of um, freedom of information requests into local authorities all across the north, and it's in regards to this little known piece of legislation called adverse possession, Um, and that basically means if a company or a person uses a piece of land, a piece of local authority land for 12 years, they can legally uh, win the right to to own it. So listeners might be familiar. So if if they've got like a a patch of land next to their house and they maybe have used it for a driveway for a a considerable period, they can then go on to claim that. So basically what these FOIs have shown is that over the last five years, um, around 61,000 square feet of land, which is kind of around 22 tennis courts, has been lost through this legislation by different local authorities. And if you were to kind of look at how much the average price of a square foot of land is, it roughly means about £17 million worth of land has been given away. Now, obviously, we're, we're going through a, a period of, um, you know, cost of living crisis and, you know, diminishing budgets. So I think some of the people I've spoken to certainly are kind of looking at, you know, asking how and why this has happened. And I think one of the things to point out, obviously, is that as so many local authorities have, have you know, had to... Cut back over the years and lost a lot of, you know, housing officers and various other people in previous years that maybe would have been on top of things like this. You know, this is something that could happen more and more in future, where you know people start using land and councils are not able to kind of police it in a way, and they're able to then take it through this legislation. So, so yeah, it's it's, it's been quite a quite an eye
0: opening uh, piece, really, and quite an, quite an interesting one, I think. Fantastic stuff. Well, you can read all about that in the Northern Agenda newsletter this week when it comes out. So I've got to say, for me, the story I've been most interested in this week is an appalling, uh, heartbreaking one in, in Rochdale, in Greater Manchester, where it's been revealed that a a little boy aged just two has died after being exposed to mould and damp in a social housing flat that one expert described as a sweat box. And it sounds like that tragedy is just one example of the terrible conditions families are living in on the Freehold estates in Rochdale. And that's a story that's been brought to the public's attention by the Manchester Evening News this week. Now we've got Stephen Topping, the reporter who did some really great Work bringing this to light on the podcast to talk to us today but Dan our other guest on the Northern Agenda podcast paints an alarming picture of the state of private rented housing in the north too who, who have you been speaking to?
1: I've been speaking to uh, Brian Robson from the Northern Housing Consortium and they just brought out this kind of wide-ranging report about kind of the state as you say of private of the private rented sector in the north of England and it, it's kind of truly shocking really if you kind of go through the report it's you know, around four in 10 of private rented homes in our region have been deemed non-decent by the government's own decent home standard. And Brian really was kind of going into how the conditions really are, are pretty awful. And he cited um, that awful story uh, coming out of, of Rochdale as just, you know, one of the many examples that have come out in recent years about, you know, how housing is really, really impacting people's lives. Um, he also kind of went on to say, obviously, ahead of uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss being in, Manchester this week that you know his organisation among many others were kind of calling on the government to you know stand firm behind some of these levelling up commitments you know certainly around housing but I've got to say it, it was a less than optimistic chat really I think obviously as we've reported on so many times before you know so many of these commitments have kind of fallen into doubt in recent weeks as this leadership contest has gone on both candidates you know perhaps not fully committed to some of these things so so, yeah, so it's, it, it's quite an, an illuminating, but maybe not the most cheery of chats, I've got to say.
0: Yeah. And like you say, Liz Truss and Rishi Sinak in Manchester on Friday night. And I guess in, in a well-adjusted leadership debate, stories like the one we've been hearing in Rochdale, I think would be kind of front and centre of what people are, are talking about. Well, I suspect it probably won't be, which I guess says a little bit about the the terms of engagement for uh, our next Prime Minister, but um, we've got Stephen Topping here from the Manchester Evening News. Stephen, welcome to the welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you for having me today.
0: It's great to have you on. It, it's such a, a good and so thorough and comprehensive piece of journalism that you, you did about the freehold estate in Manchester, and it, it's you know really got me thinking about the, you know, the the state of some of the the housing that people spend their lives in, particularly that children are are, are exposed to. I mean, maybe you could just start by just telling us a bit about how. How did you find out about this story in, in, in the first place? And so what, what were the main points of what you discovered?
2: Of course. So we we found out about um, Awab um, through sort of the coroner's court listings. It was a case that, that was coming up at Rochdale, the death of a two-year-old boy. Um, he, he actually died in in Oldham uh, Hospital. So it, it came up as it does with everyone else who's died, just basically the name, the age and where died and that's pretty much all we know until um until you're able to get into coroner's court it was actually um my, my colleague uh kit vickery who actually sat in the pre-ingress review hearing at the time and um, where a lot of the times if uh, if you've ever sort of covered these sort of pre inquest reviews before but you don't tend to get quite a lot of detail in them it's usually quite a lot of legal arguments just about the different people who are going to be called to speak whether or not they'll have a jury that kind of thing but we actually got quite a lot of information about the circumstances of the death what the uh, post-mortem had found and that was the the crucial thing really in in this story was what the pathologist had had found to do obviously um, establishing that medical link between the the damp housing that his family were living in and unfortunately, the, the the tragic death at such a young age.
0: And as well as Awab's death, which was in 2020, that happened, wasn't it? The what What you found when you knocked on pretty much every door on the estate was that the conditions that it seems led to his terrible death were far from uncommon. And in fact, loads of families and kids were living in quite similar conditions.
2: That's right. And I think that's the, the really shocking thing. So the the day after the, the hearing at, at the coroner's court, um, I went out, it was, um, I think the news desk were kind of hoping it might just be a sort of straightforward, as we call it, a, a death knock in the industry where we'd, we'd go around and talk to the family of a Awab. Um, and but that was the first door i, I tried at the estate and uh, someone else lived there entirely which obviously makes sense that the family wouldn't, wouldn't want to live in that home anymore and he he um he didn't know the story he didn't know about our um, he didn't know the family at all and then it was only from there really that we started knocking on the other doors so every door on that block uh, the estate itself it's kind of um to just try and uh, put put your listeners into the picture really so imagine it's it's a bit of a maze to walk around. There's sort of walkways linking them sort of on higher levels. And then you've got kind of lawns at the bottom. It's kind of one set of homes on top of another. And I guess they're like maids really. It's, you, you go in and then there's a staircase and then all the rooms are on kind of a, an upper level. And then there's the, the same again on top of that. So knocks on all the doors of the the first block that that, that Awab uh, had been living in and barely anyone sort of answered the door at any of the blocks that, that we tried. And there's probably a combination of factors about the time of day. Obviously, it was people would be at work um, but there were families who'd opened the door who didn't really have much of a grasp of, uh, of English, and we couldn't really sort of speak to them either. And it was only underneath where Awab had been living that there were two families who were happy. They didn't want to be named, but they were happy to sort of tell us about their circumstances. And it it, it was that was the the start of it really. Um, we could finally see that you know this wasn't an isolated case, and then it it sort of it grew from there. But over quite a long period of time.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, one of the things that I found most interesting was that hardly anyone on the estate really knew that Awab had died or the circumstances in which he'd uh, died. Now, you also spoke to experts and 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 the the housing association and and uh, you know lawyers who are interested in this about how this has all come to pass. I mean, and what what were you able to glean about how. We got the freehold estate got into a situation where so much of the accommodation is, you know, just not really habitable for human beings in the twenty first century as we are
2: yeah so at this at the sort of same time where the investigation was kind of taking place and it took a while for us to really get anywhere we weren't really getting hold of the family or anything like that and it was t- taking quite a long time to sort of get families sort of on the record and, and that kind of thing I, I began sort of speaking to different people about the, the wider issues i spoke to a legal expert who, who told me you know that there's a kind of history where a lot of these properties he described them as a, as a sweat box. Because over time they might have had double glazing fitted or other measures fitted that were designed to improve the condition of the properties, but nothing was ever done to tackle ventilation. So it's ended up just causing a, a, a bigger issue for in terms of damp and mould. I also spoke to campaigners as well, people who work with residents on the ground who who kind of basically told us about the, the different kind of experiences they have. It might be that if, if they don't have English as a first language, that they really struggle to get good outcomes. When they report problems to housing associations, and that can be a real challenge. And but just also as well, just the the kind of dismissal from some housing associations that uh, you know they'll very easily be quick to say, "Oh well, it's you're not opening your windows, you're not ventilating, you're not doing this." But like these families were just trying year after year. Like the windows were open, they're constantly trying to keep on top of it. But it just whatever they do, it it, it wouldn't work
0: yeah and it must be really i mean as, as some of the families in your piece said it must be really horrifying to live in live in a house where you can see the mold and the damp developing on the walls and the you know you're trying everything you can to stop it and you know it's making your family and your kids unwell but there's nothing you can do i mean it's hard to imagine being in being in that situation i mean from a you know a point of view of you know people think of reporters and journalists as being often quite Hard-hearted and you know not that sympathetic to the people that they're dealing with, but it, it must have been quite hard hearing these stories over and over again from from people in those circumstances.
2: Definitely, um, I think it's it's one of them where you you kind of get you get used to this to what you're expecting to hear people to say and you kind of perhaps at the moment it's happening you because it's what you're expecting to hear and you can see it and stuff perhaps the emotional side of things doesn't quite hit you at the time and then it's only really as you're driving away it just kind of hits you all at once and you think it's just shocking that you know people are having to live in in these conditions and I think you know one thing for me when after we'd we'd spoken to the housing association and then they said that they were going to go in and have a look at all these properties after on the back of the investigation I think that was one point where it really hit me that actually you know this is something that that hopefully will make a difference to these families lives but again it's it's only because our investigation has exposed it if and if we hadn't taken that step these people would still be living in conditions that have effectively we, we believe have, have killed a, a two-year-old boy yeah.
0: And it does sound like, as you say, the work that you've done and that the MEN has done has brought this issue into the public domain more than it was before. And obviously, it sounds like an obvious point, but if this is happening on the freehold estate in Rochdale, it stands to reason that it's happening elsewhere in Rochdale, elsewhere in Greater Manchester, elsewhere in the north of England, and elsewhere in the, the whole country. So, is, is the next step for you and for the MEN to sort of get a sense of? You know, try and address and publicise the, the the issue more more widely.
2: Absolutely. Um, so from the moment the this was kind of what we hoped would happen. It was one of them where when you when you're doing one of these investigations, I think you know there's an argument to say, oh, do we do we hold on? Do we get that bit more? Do we get that bit more? But actually, like since we've put it out there, it's just had a bit of a snowball effect. We've had so many other people coming forward to us, um, people who live on the estate sharing their with their stories. Uh, people who live at other Rochdale Borough-wide housing properties where they have similar issues, but they're in different estates. We've had people coming to us from, someone's come to us from Salford. We've had people, someone who said they've had issues at at Tameside and Rush Home and just different parts of Greater Manchester. And um, yeah, obviously it's a much bigger issue. There's there's a a lady I spoke to as well. She said that she grew up uh, living in social housing in, Birmingham and then South Wales before moving to Manchester and she she suffered breathing issues at the time and she's never fully sort of recovered from that so it's it's so many different um it's definitely opened our eyes i think to just how widespread this problem is and um and going forward we are looking to try and you know we sort of we've been speaking to mps speaking to various people uh, charities and campaigners and we're looking to see how what the best way will be to try and get more people to to listen to it and uh, hopefully make a bit of a difference
0: so it sounds like this is really just the start potentially of uh, of your coverage of this issue well that's great to hear um Stephen thank you for talking to us today about the story it's uh, the, the work you've done and it's been really fantastic and now let's hear a bit from our next guest today Brian Robson
1: Now, as the Tory leadership race comes to the north this week, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss are both being engaged to accelerate reforms to protect tenants following a new report that reveals the state of private rented homes across the region. Around 1.2 million northern private renter households have been deemed non-decent according to the Northern Housing Consortium. NHC Executive Director Brian Robson joins me now to discuss all this and more. Brian, welcome. I wonder if you could just talk us through some of the key findings of your report
3: yeah sure so as you say uh, 1.2 million northern households now living in the private rental sector that's about one in six households in the north and across the north 30 percent of those homes don't meet the decent home standard and yorkshire in particular has the lowest quality private rented sector in the country with 37 percent of those private rentals non-decent and i think one of the reasons this is such a significant finding is that back in february With the launch of the levelling up white paper, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove announced they were going to extend this decent home standard to the private rental sector for the first time. And also set a levelling up mission to halve the number of non-decent rented homes by 2030 with the biggest reductions in the worst performing areas. So what our report clearly shows is that that would include large swears of the north.
1: You know, this is a story that'll be all too familiar to our listeners and to those in the rented sector across the north. You know, we've had ever increase in rents and, and seemingly falling standards for years now. I mean, what would you like to see the next incumbents of Downing Street do on day one to address some of these issues?
3: I think it's it's really important that whoever wins a leadership contest, you know, whether it's Rishi Sunak or this trust, that they recommit to that leveling up housing mission that Michael Gordon, Boris Johnson announced. We thought that was really a significant announcement that they were going to extend this standard to the private renter sector. So we'd like to see them, you know, recommit to that, make a personal commitment to that and the wider renter's reform agenda. I think they need to get on with the process of consulting and finishing the detail around what that will look like. And I think the other thing we need Bearing in mind the cost of living crisis is some urgent action around energy efficiency. That's one of the big reasons that properties fail the decent home standard. And with the bills people will be facing this winter and next winter, we need to get on with insulating homes and making them them fit to live in.
1: You mentioned the levelling up agenda there. I mean, how concerned have you been to have seen, you know, there's been reports over the summer as we've gone through this leadership contest that, you know, the levelling up department, you know, there's questions over its future, the levelling up missions, you know, obviously Michael Gove, was sacked he was obviously a massive driving force behind this whole thing you know how worried are you on some of these commitments and whether they will continue uh, going going forward
3: i mean I, th- I think naturally it is a worry you know with the change of administration with michael Gove going particularly uh, he'd been a big driving force behind a lot of this but you know 300 pages of analysis and and solutions in the leveling up white paper in february you know that had taken two years to produce and it, we're only six months on from that those standard those missions that analysis is just as relevant now as it was in February. Uh, we can't afford to be keeping chopping and changing. People have been waiting too long for this kind of progress, this kind of rebalancing that we all want to see in the North. So we really need, you know, they've both got Yorkshire links, these two candidates, we really need them to, to restate that commitment to people in the North uh, and get on and deliver.
1: I don't know what you've made of, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around potentially extending the right to buy to housing association homes, you know, given all the issues with the original right to buy scheme and, you know, a lot of the housing stock not being replaced. And, you know, this is obviously fed into some of the current issues we have. I mean, do you think this will just exacerbate some of the problems that we've got?
3: Certainly it will if the the properties aren't replaced like for like, and that's very difficult to achieve with the level of discount the government uh, seeks to offer tenants. I think one of the interesting things, Dan, is that some of these private rented homes we're talking about were originally council houses that were sold through the right to buy and have then fell into the hands of private landlords and have been let on much higher rents with less security and at lower standards than the neighbouring social housing. Um, And the risk is if we extend the right to buy to housing associations, we lose more stock like that and actually people who really should be living in a council housing association house, that's what they need, end up paying more and getting less in the private rented sector.
1: Just discussing, you know, replacing homes like for like. I mean, obviously we've had, you know, most governments pay lip service to this, you know, whether Labour or Tory and, you know, so many governments really, you know, they may boast of the number of houses that they've built, but they very, very often fall below, you know, what is required. Um, You know, we're going into the winter, it's going to be a cost of living crisis. You know, there's many many issues to contend with. Do you think housing is just another one of those things that will just get pushed to the bottom of the pile, even though it is obviously such a huge issue of concern for so many people in the country?
3: I mean, it it is a massive concern. You know, the, the rate of inflation that people are experiencing day to day is affected by how well insulated their house is, how much fuel they have to use to get their house to a to a reasonable degree of warmth. So there's there's that piece, the cost of living piece. There's also the net zero agenda. You know, the government's committed to to net zero emissions by twenty fifty quarter of our emissions across the north come from our existing homes. So we're investing in homes to make them better insulated and switching heat from gas to to, to renewable sources. It's going to to be a big part of reaching net zero over the next 30 years. So I don't think government can afford to ignore housing issues in the north or elsewhere. Uh, We need to be boosting supply and you know as our report shows we really need to boost quality of the existing stock as well. I think
1: we've only seen uh, recently the devastating impact of poor quality housing. With um, the Manchester Evening News reported on the death of a two-year-old boy who died after his lungs were exposed to damp and mold in his home in Rochdale. Um, I don't know if you saw that case, but you know there are many more awful examples like this. I mean, do you worry we're on the edges of a of a wider crisis here? You know, we're heading into the winter where many people may not be able to afford fuel bills and all the rest of it. Um, you know how how concerned are you that you, you might start to see more horrific cases like like that one?
3: Well, I mean that that was a that was a tragic case. I read about that in the newsletter earlier this week. Um, I mean one of the one of the risk factors around damp and mould is when you're not heating your home to a, to an adequate standard. And If people can't afford to do that and kind of voluntarily self disconnect and and aren't, aren't able to, to to pay the bills, then there there is a higher risk of that. That's what we're facing. Um and it is about investing in, in insulation. Um, about making sure our homes are cheaper to heat. It's no good expecting people to pay extortionate gas and electricity bills when the heat's disappearing out of cracks in the window frames and and through poorly insulated walls and lofts. So you know we do need to to get on with that. Um, we're not doing it fast enough. The report we published this week shows that at current rates of progress, we'll still have about uh, three hundred fifty thousand homes. Uh, in the private rental sector in the north that aren't at that key um, EPCC rating which is the, what the government are aiming for by 2030 that's equivalent to a city the size of Leeds plus a third of Bradford to give you some idea of the scale of that so this is a massive problem we really need to step up progress to that big opportunities though around it you know can create loads of jobs local jobs good well-paid jobs in local communities um upgrading local homes for local people
1: I mean, I don't know how many kind of interactions you have kind of with central government, but I just wondered what kind of the noise. I mean, I suppose it's been on gridlock, I suppose, since Boris Johnson announced his resignation. And we're, we're all just kind of in a, in a bit of a holding pattern at the moment, waiting for the next prime minister. Um, but what kind of noises have you heard? Do you hear on this kind of subject? I mean, how seriously do you think ministers are about getting to grips with this?
3: Um, I mean, I think Michael Gove had been taking it extremely seriously. We'd seen a real increase in the, the pace of work on the decent homes review. Um, within the Department for Leveling Up, um, during his period in charge, you've got other ministers there like Eddie Hughes MP, who's a real champion for for tenants, frankly. Um, so I think you know there have been some positive signs, but as you say, it, things have gone into a kind of odd period of stasis over the summer, and we really need the new Prime Minister to put their foot on the gas and and you know kind of deliver on these commitments. The government lost two years effectively through the coronavirus crisis. We've got that levelling up white paper in February. We're only six months on from it. We need to get on with delivery, and it's in their political interest apart from anything else because they're going to have to face the Northern electorate in a couple of years' time, and they need to be able to show they've, they've delivered on those missions they set out.
1: You know, a key date in that um, whole levelling up white paper was 2030. You know, that was the that was the target they set themselves, that they would deliver a lot of these things. Are you are you optimistic that that's still achievable or, or was ever
3: achievable? Um, it was always going to be stretching, to, to be honest, Dan. But, uh, you know, the, the longer we leave it to come up with a plan, uh, the harder it's going to be and the less deliverable it's going to be. So, you know, the councils, housing associations in the north, combined authorities, really keen to work with the government to push this forward. Andy Burnham had asked that Greater Manchester was a was a pathfinder for housing quality, but there's there's nobody in government at the moment who can make those kind of decisions and, and agree to work with them. That's what we need the new Prime Minister to, to do right from the very start on September the 5th.
1: You mentioned Andy Burnham there. Um, I just wonder kind of what role uh, devolution plays in all this, because I think, as I said before, you know, we've heard so often where governments will commit or recommit to delivering a certain number of houses. I mean, how, I mean, I know Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham, are another northern metro mayors, have kind of called for, called for more devolution of maybe tax-raising powers in their areas so they can kind of, you know, do a bit more uh, in their in their areas. I mean, I just was interested to know kind of what role you thought that played.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the combined authorities are probably the right kind of geography to look at many housing issues. I think the other thing they can do if budgets are devolved to them, and it, and it is about devolving budgets, not just delegating them, actually giving them real control over budgets, they can join up agendas. So at the moment, the Department of Business has got a pot of money for decarbonising homes. The department of Leveling Up has got another pot of money for delivering new affordable homes. Actually, somebody like Andy Burnham or Tracy Braben in West Yorkshire could join up those pots of money and have a much greater impact, and, you know, encourage local supply chains, develop skills amongst local people. Uh, and that kind of join up you can do at city region level. It's very difficult to do from Whitehall. So we'd be really keen to see funds for, for brownfield housing, for affordable housing, potentially for, for net zero as well, devolved and joined up at local level so that we can make more of them. Um, it would be great to see more money, but actually we could make more, more out of the existing budgets if they were controlled at a uh, more sensible level.
0: link to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and dan o'donoghue and it's produced by daniel j mccoughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week, bye-bye.